Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to our book forum today on a rather important book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet by Jeff Kossoff. General housekeeping note, which you may be familiar with if you come to book forums at Cato. We, for the first hour or so, will have our author and two commentators reflect on this book, followed by a question and answer session. And then about 1.30, we shall have lunch, as well as probably more conversation about these issues. But let's go to the subject matter today. Across Europe and the Anglosphere, legislators and regulators work to heap ever greater burdens on the intermediaries which facilitate internet speech. In American, factions of both the left and right would see platforms treated as the publishers of their users' speech. That means subject to all the rules that go for normal publishers, including libel, with unknown but perhaps very uh, damaging effects on speech or our freedom of speech. For example, Australia's sharing of abhorrent violent content bill, a recent law, includes provisions to jail social media executives. The UK is creating a quasi-private social media regulator with broad authority to find platforms who do not remove loosely defined harmful content. And just this morning, the EU Parliament voted for an anti-terrorism bill, which requires intermediaries to act on reports of terrorist content within 60 minutes, under threats of fines as large as 4% of their annual revenue. Think about what that would mean for large companies in particular, uh, like Google and Facebook. That's a lot of money, but of course, for small companies, that might be an, uh, even more uh, damaging. The imposition of intermediary liability is increasingly seen as a simple solution to a wide variety of dangers, perhaps revealed by, but not created by, the internet. Regulars have long grappled with the challenge of preventing liable media bias, radicalization, and harassment without suppressing free expression and the positive democratic externalities thereof. There is, however, a tendency, a temptation, to treat these questions as novel, born of specific political controversies or particular uh, features of currently dominant speech platforms. These tensions and the wicked problems inherent in resolving them long predate social media and the internet itself. And that brings us to our book today and our author, The 26 Words That Created the Internet is a history and discussion and analysis of that uh, struggles over the internet, the, the words that created the internet, and the policies thereof. Our author, Jeff Kosak, is assistant professor of cybersecurity law in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He practiced cybersecurity, privacy, and First Amendment law at Covington and Berlin, and correct for and clerked for Judge Milan D. Smith, Jr. of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and Judge Leonie M. Brikima of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Before becoming a lawyer, he was a technology and political journalist for the Oregonian, 
and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. Jeff, welcome to the Cato Institute, and we're eager to hear about your book. Eager to talk about it. Thank you. Um, and uh, just a disclaimer at the beginning of the talk, uh, I am a professor at the Naval Academy. Uh, thank you to my students, yeah. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming, but I do have to say that I, everything that I say today is only on my behalf, and it's not on behalf of DOD, Navy, or the US Naval Academy. Now that that disclaimer is out of the way, I can tell the story of how we got here with internet regulation for our user content. Um, and it does not start with the internet. You have to think way back to 1956. Uh, this book was being sold at a newsstand in Los Angeles in a really seedy part of town owned by, the newsstand was owned by a 72-year-old Polish immigrant named Eliezer Smith. Uh, this book is called Sweeter Than Life. Uh, it does not have the cover. I got it from uh, an online used bookstore. And I can say that it is not a very good book. Uh, I will read the first line, which is pretty much all that I'm able to read. Uh, Nim Bardolph stretched her slender, beautiful legs under the dashboard of the white Cadillac convertible. So an LAPD vice officer happened to be undercover in Mr. Smith's newsstand. and. He read that and he said, this is obscene. And Mr. Smith was arrested and he was sentenced to 30 days in jail. He appeals all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says that his conviction has to be overturned because the ordinance that he was convicted under did not have any requirement for his state of mind, meaning it didn't matter if he knew that this book was obscene, that he could go to jail regardless and that's violating the First Amendment. So we have that rule this First Amendment rule saying the only way you can hold a distributor of content liable is if they know or should have known of the content. So this applies to bookstore, bookstores, newsstands, all sorts of people who sell content created by others. And it's a pretty easy rule until we get to the early 90s. We have services that my students probably don't remember called CompuServe, Prodigy, and America Online. Uh, CompuServe and Prodigy were the first two big online services, and they took very, very different approaches to how they allowed users to interact. CompuServe was like the Wild West. They let people post anything. They had no moderators, no content policies. Prodigy, on the other hand, had a lot of policies. They contracted out to moderators to delete objectionable content. Uh, within the span of a few years, both Prodigy and CompuServe ended up getting sued for defamation, CompuServe for a newsletter that it distributed, and Prodigy for a user post on a bulletin board. Uh, actually, a user post about uh, Daniel Porish, who's the guy who was played by uh, Jonah Hill in The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, the two results were very different. For CompuServe, the case gets tossed out because the judge says that CompuServe is no different than Eliezer Smith's newsstand. CompuServe is just a distributor. Prodigy, on the other hand, is found to be a publisher of the content because Prodigy took steps to edit user content, had moderation policies, all of that made Prodigy liable as if it were the speaker. So this creates this fairly perverse effect where online services get more protection under the First Amendment if they don't do anything. So that's where Congress steps in. 
1995, Congress was going through this multi-year process to pass the Telecommunications Act, which eventually passed in 96. And most of the debate was about how to regulate uh, local phone companies, long distance companies. I mean, it's pre pretty uh, interesting when you look back at it now that that was what the debate was. But there was this thing called the internet that was kind of percolating. Uh, Time Magazine ran a cover story on cyber pornography. Uh, there was a senator from uh, Nebraska, a conservative Democrat named James Exon, and he was very concerned about his grandchildren seeing all of this content online. So he passed something called the, or he, he proposed something called the Communications Decency Act as an amendment to the Telecom Act, which basically said, imposed a lot of penalties on individuals and companies for transmitting uh, certain types of materials to minors. And, in, and that would have really made it very difficult to send even harm, harmless things like information about diseases. There was no real clear, defi clear definition and there were a lot of First Amendment concerns. So he proposes this, he gets it attached to the Senate version of the Telecom Act. And on the House side, they're really concerned about this. There are technology, civil liberties groups, uh, tech companies like Prodigy, AOL, and CompuServe that say, we don't wanna do this. We, we're, we're better positioned than the government, than the FCC, to determine what is inappropriate for minors. And our customers will vote with their wallets. So if we have all of this objectionable material on our services, and we're not meeting the demands of the parents who are subscribing, they're gonna walk away, they're gonna vote with their wallets. So the solution was the, what became Section 230. It was proposed by uh, Chris Cox and Ron Wyden. So Chris Cox is a fairly conservative, moderate conservative congressman from Orange County. Ron Wyden, now a senator at the time, he was a US representative, fairly liberal uh, Democrat from Portland. And they shared an interest in first helping the technology industry to grow. So both of their districts had a lot of technology presence. But they also wanted to, this theory of user empowerment, that was kind of driving what they did. So they pr proposed section 230, which says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held to be the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So that's the 26 words. Uh, if you don't know what that means, that's okay, because nobody then knew what it meant. There was literally no coverage of this in the news as it got attached to the Telecom Act and passed into uh, and signed on February 8th, 1996 by President Clinton. There was a lot of coverage because the other portion of the bill, the Communications Decency Act, also got passed. So both Senator Axon and the Cox-Wyden bill ended up getting passed into law. And the next year, the Supreme Court struck down Exxon's amend amendment. So all of that indecency, all of the criminal penalties, those, that went away because the Supreme Court said it violates the First Amendment. So what you had left of the Communications Decency Act, which is buried in this uh, massive, doubt, I think it was about 2,000 page Telecom Reform Act, were these 26 words uh, that have a few exceptions for intellectual property, for federal criminal law, for Electronic Communications Privacy Act, but there's not much more. But still, it got, I, I can tell you, having gone through all the newspaper clips, there was really no coverage of this. So lawyers didn't even know what to do with it. 
That changed the next year, in mid-1997. So there was, and this involves America Online. So there was a man named Ken Zarin, uh, living a pretty quiet life, doing photography, uh, selling real estate, living with his parents in Seattle. He suddenly starts getting a lot of phone calls. First, it's every half hour, then it gets to be multiple calls a minute, saying really mean things to him, and he doesn't know why. Then he starts getting reporters calling him, and he finds out what happened is that somebody, we still to this day don't know who, somebody posted on America Online on one of their user bulletin boards a comments or an advertisement for t-shirts mocking the Oklahoma City bombing. And so this was in 95, this was about six days after the bombing. I won't repeat uh, the, exact, the exact terms, but they were really crude, awful jokes. So he doesn't know what America Online is. He doesn't have America Online. So he calls America Online and they say, okay, this is bad, we'll take care of it, we'll take it down. They delay taking it down. When they do take it down, another post gets put up. Multiple posts keep going up. He's begging them, he's writing letters to them. They're not doing anything about it. And it takes weeks for this to get sorted out. He has to go to the media, to the Oklahoma City newspaper, because on top of this, a DJ in Oklahoma City read the ad on the air and read his phone number, which was in the ad. So he's getting all of these calls. And he it eventually stops, but he sues America Online. And the, the lawsuit was filed in 1997. This is the first lawsuit after Section 230, seeking to hold an online platform liable for user content. So America Online uh, hires, to its credit, one of the best media lawyers in town, Pat Carone. And Pat knows about this Section 230. And he makes this clever argument that nobody had thought to make before, that those 26 words means that America Online is absolutely not responsible for anything its users post. Now, the Zarin's attorney says that's not the right reading of it. What you need to look at is that it's not holding them to be the publisher or speaker. So it's holding them to be the distributor, which means if once they get notice of the posts, they will be liable. So this goes up. First, the district court, uh, Judge Ellis, who just presided over the Manafort trial, he dismisses the case, and then it goes up to the Fourth Circuit. And Nobody really knows how this is going to rule because, again, no court had ever interpreted Section 230. So uh, it, go, it goes to a panel that really, by a real stroke of luck, ended up having Judge Wilkinson, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, who used to be a newspaper editor. And he writes this opinion that basically says, Section 230, these 26 words are what they are. What they say is that you can't hold these platforms liable at all. So we're going to, we feel for you, but this is the choice Congress made. We are going to dismiss the case. And so that first federal appellate court ruling is basically what I, at least for my research, almost every other federal court's interpretation of Section 230 rests on. Uh, they all will say, you know, we've, in so many opinions, and what I write about in the book is they'll say, we feel really bad for you, plaintiff. Really, really bad but sees Aaron, and, that's what, and so that's basically become the law of the land. It's not gone up to the Supreme Court for interpretation. So 
when I was doing the book, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, both Chris Cox and Ron Wyden were very generous with their time and talked with me for a while about it. And one thing that really impressed me is that they both really seemed to know the nuances of the law and they actually intended the result in Zarin uh, because a lot of the commentary says this is not what section 230 was intended for, uh, at least according to them it was. So, but Chris Cox also says that some interpretations since Zarin have really concerned him. And so I asked him, what, what's the most concerning? And he immediately responds with the word Batesel. And so I'll just tell the, this story, I think it really illustrates the scope of Section 230. Uh, so Ellen Batesel was an attorney who had just moved to North Carolina. She was representing art galleries, museums, and she uh, needed some work done. A friend asked her to hire a handyman. The handyman does some work on her house. She's not happy with the work, and at least according to her interpretation, he wanted her to market a script to one of her clients in Hollywood, and she didn't want to do it. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a great situation, um, but he, for whatever reason, uh, sent an email to something called the Museum Security Network based in the ne Netherlands, uh, which is dedicated to helping recover stolen artwork. And he writes in it, you know, I just did some work for a woman named Ellen Batesel in North Carolina. Uh, I think she said she was descended from a Nazi. I think it might have been that she's Heinrich Himmler's granddaughter. And I saw a lot of really fancy artwork on her walls. So strong implication of what that's saying. Uh, she says, you know, the, the, I represent art galleries. I'm not, I never claimed to be a descendant of any Nazis. Um, but the owner of the listserv gets the email, so it's sent to him, he gets the email, he makes some editorial changes to it, and he posts it both online on the website as well as on the listserv. Ellen Batesel's life gets ruined quickly. She's losing clients because she represents a lot of art galleries and museums, uh, she, and she doesn't know why. Someone finally mails her the post months later, so she sues. And what the Ninth Circuit does, there was a bit of a complicated procedural history, but the Ninth Circuit says that Section 230 does protect uh, someone like the Museum Security Listserv, even if they make the affirmative choice to forward it on to its users. Uh, so I think that probably illustrates the big, how sweeping after Zarin Section 230's become. Now, um, I spent a lot of time speaking with Ellen Batesel. She uh, has a lot of really insightful thoughts about Section 230, and she does not agree with Section 230. Uh, but then I asked her, you know, do you think this is what caused your harm? And she paused for a second, and she said no. She said, you know, he, he was in the Netherlands. He had no idea what Section 230 was. And I know we have C-SPAN here, so I won't say exactly what she said, but she said people are going to be a, and you, you could fill in the rest of the words, uh, but, uh, and, and I think that was actually pretty insightful because we look at Section 230 and we see a lot of debate about what the platforms are doing. And I need to be clear, the platforms are not doing enough to moderate. Uh, also need to be clear, there's not going to be a perfect solution because no matter what you do, unless you ban all user content, some bad content is gonna get in. So that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is that the internet under Section 230, I believe, has held up a mirror to, for society 
to say, you know, this is what we look like. And there are some bad people uh, who will do bad things, like claim that someone, like defame someone and make these claims that could really ruin someone's life. Um, we have issues like revenge pornography, uh, terrorists recruiting on social media, sex trafficking online, which is something that went up, that Congress ended up amending Section 234, uh, harassment of all kinds. And Section 230 does allow the platforms to take a hands-off approach. And I would say that's allowed by the law, but that's also not necessarily what Section 230 was intended for. I view Section 230 as being a contract between Congress and the platform saying, you know, the platforms are better than the federal government at regulating content, re regulating user content. We want them to take care of this based on market demands. Uh, and I'll say it's a much more complicated answer about are they, how are they doing? They're doing stuff, not doing enough. And I think if you look at the debate in Congress right now, I think Section 230's days, days may well be limited. Uh, I think a lot of it is based on misinformation. I think also a lot of it is based on the arrogance over many years of many tech companies. Uh, I will say that I think if Section 230 is fully repealed, I would like to know what the next step would be. I, I, I think that there's not really a good answer to that because you could repeal Section 230, but as I say in the book, sec the, the modern internet in the United States is built on Section 230. We have almost all of our largest websites that are visited rely on user content. And I don't think that they would be able to exist in their current forms if we did not have Section 230. Now that may be a good thing or a bad thing to you, depending on what your preferences are, but it would be a radical change. And I would like, I, I think we need to have a social discussion about how, how we want the internet to look. Because uh, when I first uh, proposed the book, it was actually called The 26 Words That Shaped the Internet. I changed that as I was researching it because I think that these 26 words really did create the internet. They created the social structure of the internet that we know today. Uh, I, the internet would look very different. And uh, again, if, if that's something that uh, we want as a, as a society, I think that's fine. But I think we need to have a, an informed discussion about this. And uh, anyone who tells you that it, there's an easy answer to solving this has not thought about the questions long enough because I can tell you there is not an easy answer. There are a lot of equities, a lot of trade-offs. And I hope with this book that uh, it will help to inform this discussion as we figure out how we want uh, to take the internet in the future. That I think is There you go, Jeff, with all that complication and nuance. Everyone knows that there are no real policy problems. There's just bad people making bad policy. And when the good people get their chance, there's no real problem there. Uh, our first commentator will be Emma Lonzo. Emma is the director of the Center for Democracy and Technology's Free Expression Project, which works to promote law and policy that support internet users' free expression rights in the United States and around the world. The, project, the project's work spans many subjects, including human trafficking, privacy, and online reputation issues. 
counterterrorism and radicalizing content, and online harassment. Emma leads uh, CDT's legislative advocacy and amicus activity in the United States and the EU, which means she's responsible for the greater part of the world, right? And she, may, she, she may look tired, that's why. <laughs> which focuses on protecting fundamental rights to freedom of expression and preserving strong intermediate liability protections, which is our subject today. The project, project also works to develop content policy best practices with internet content platforms and advocates for, advocates for user empowerment tools, an interesting idea, and other alternatives to government regulation of online speech. She earned a BA in anthropology, and that will turn out later. I'll tell you, it ties some of our, uh, uh, our commentators together. A BA in anthropology from the University of Delaware and a JD from Yale Law School. Welcome, Emma. We look forward to your comments. Thank you for that kind introduction, John. And Jeff, thank you for a remarkable book. Um, I think you call it in your introduction a sort of a biography of Section 230. Um, it's a as a person who works in this policy space and has been in DC for about past 10 years, um, working at Center for Democracy and Technology on intermediary liability issues, you know, we've seen a lot of different sides of Section 230 over the years, kind of the way that it functions in court cases. Um, we often talk about it being as important as the First Amendment to supporting freedom of expression online. Uh, my organization in particular has a, a deep history with Section 230. Our founder, Jerry Berman, makes a, a couple of appearances in Jeff's book um, back in, you know, 1994. Uh, he and some of the other folks who were in the nascent digital rights sphere um, were excited to find senators um, like Cox and Wyden to work with on, uh, you know, on creating what these 26 words would be. And I don't know that even then anybody had quite the vision of the internet that we would have you know, in 10 years' time, let alone the internet that we have today. Um, but I think that that was one thing that I really drew from, um, from Jeff's book, discussing kind of the creation of the law, what led to it, and also how it was interpreted by courts, especially in the first you know, 10 years or so after it was passed, was that there was something of a common vision for what was it that people, governments, companies, um, lawyers <laughs> were trying to achieve with Section 230. What kind of internet were we really aiming towards? Um, there were the early cases of Prodigy and the Cubby versus CompuServe case that, that showed that the traditional First Amendment law um, was potentially going to lead to some really adverse outcomes or really confusing results where website operators who did the job of trying to moderate um, the speech on their platforms put themselves at more risk. Uh, and that seemed to disincentivize exactly the kind of, you know, pro-social content moderation or keeping, uh, you know, keeping discussions on topic, um, dealing with, you know, harassment or just unproductive comments that we actually really wanted to see in early online fora. Um, so we have section 230 and one of the kind of remarkable pieces about it as um, there, there are many more than 26 words in the total statute because there's a pretty substantial findings and policy section at the, the very front of the statute um, where you know, the, 
the drafters of the law are really articulate their vision for what the internet is going to mean um, for the US and, and really for the world. And it talks about things like you know, being the most sort of self-directed access to information that people have ever really had, the educational opportunities, the commercial and innovation opportunities. Um, and it really hones in on, you know, the policy of the United States being supporting this free, open internet, free flow of information, um, and really putting choice in people's hands as to what they access um, and what they get to share. Uh, and this, this vision, that sounds kind of simple, um, but it was a kind of a clear vision that I think was both overtly and covertly shaping a lot of the policy debates um, in the, the early days of the internet. Uh, and it was taken up in you know, a variety of different international fora as well. Um, you know, we see similar questions come up in Europe, um, come up in countries around the world. A lot of countries have had to deal with this question of, of intermediary liability and what it should be. And there was a, you know, a great effort to promote this concept that limiting liability for intermediaries was crucial because when the, in, the technical intermediary, whether that's the content host or the search engine or the web hosting company um, or the domain name provider, if they face legal risk for other people's speech, the most sensible option for them is to shut that down. Um, they're the business incentives of hosting potentially risky speech by third parties, um, often who aren't even paying you for the privilege, uh, is, is pretty low. Um, and so there is this just strong embrace of this recognition of the role that technical intermediaries could play as gatekeepers, and, and really an embrace of the sense that legal risk for those gatekeepers um, was the wrong direction to go. But I think as we, um, you know, as, as Jeff described so well in the book, some of the, the cases that really started defining the outer boundaries of Section 230, I think started complicating this vision and muddying this question of exactly what is the kind of internet that, that people want to see. Um, so when you think about uh, you know, cases, uh, Jeff talks about the, um, the case with the website The Dirty, uh, which is a sort of gossip website, um, a site that you know, actively is out there saying, send us the dirt on people. Not necessarily send us illegal defamatory comments, um, but send us gossip, send us dirt, send us things that might be true, might not be true. Um, and the website operator looks at all of the submissions that he receives, decides which ones to put on the website, puts commentary around them, um, and, and puts out you know, material that could be extremely damaging to somebody's reputation uh, with no knowledge one way or the other of whether it's true or not. Um, and Section 230, as interpreted by many courts over many years, says that that website operator, because he did not author any of the de defamatory content, is not legally responsible for it. Um, it's a very sensible application of the law if you look at how the case law has developed, but it's also one of those kinds of cases that makes people stop and think, that can't be right. Um, that doesn't seem like the right outcome. Um, so today, I feel like we're in a, a space where it's not really clear what the vision is, or there at least are multiple competing visions being put forward by governments, by people, um, groups of users, advocacy groups, uh, people you know, raising the fact that actually a, a widely unregulated internet can have a strong chilling effect on some people's participation, and that that's actually a component of free expression as well. Um, it's also not, not entirely clear what 
uh, different companies' vision is for the internet. You know, we're, we're years away from when Twitter would describe itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. Uh, just yesterday, I think they had a post that was talking about the sense of obligation that Twitter, the company, feels to proactively find content that might be harassing or, um, you know, otherwise discouraging people from participating and sort of recognizing or articulating a responsibility that they feel to do proactive looking for content and not just rely on, on reports from users. So the sort of the, the attitudes of some of the major platforms seem to have shifted pretty significantly, and we can talk about all of the reasons why that might be. Um, but we're in, in the kind of the global policy debates today, there are a lot of different kinds of visions that are at least in tension with that, you know, late 90s, early aughts, let's make this a free, open internet, take the, the push for intermediaries to be the gatekeepers um, out of the picture by shielding them from legal liability. Today we have governments like the United Kingdom talking about wanting to regulate online harms and sort of directly recognizing that they're talking about activity that is not necessarily illegal, but still wanting to formulate a kind of duty of care for platforms to police harmful behavior because of its negative effect on society. That's a really different role for an intermediary to play than you are the publisher and nothing else of, of user-generated content. We're also seeing a lot of conversations about kind of wanting comprehensive content moderation. Um, the, you know, rewind 10, 15 years ago, and it was uh, very common for the way any content host to do moderation would be sort of a, a notice and action kind of response, whether that notice was coming as a court order from a government or much more commonly, you know, one of your users reporting there's material on your platform that violates your terms of service. Um, it was a very reactive kind of process and there was a real resistance both by companies and by free expression advocates of, of using like automated tools to try to go out and find potentially infringing or violating or illegal content. Um, that also has really shifted in a lot of the, the current discussion around the role of intermediaries where there's much more of a sense um, that you hear in, in many quarters of wanting comprehensive application of the law across all of the content on a platform, or you know, make sure that platforms enforce their terms of service consistently, which means enforce it against every piece of content on the platform and not just on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, that also causes, that's an enormously different role for a platform to play. Um, it creates any number of problems of uh, kind of over-determining what speech gets um, exposed to scrutiny, uh, shifting who bears the burden of identifying content as potentially violating speech, and also is just a, a real shift in how we've ever had kind of systems of rules or laws about speech up applied to the vast majority of kind of public discourse. Day to day, you know, you and I and everyone on this panel, everyone in this room, have a lot of different pressures and constraints that shape how we speak. Um, most of them have nothing really to do with the law. It's not that I'm, you know, standing here and worried about what a police officer might think about what I'm saying. I'm worried about what you all might think about what I'm saying and whether I'm coming across as professional or staying on topic. Um, you know, the, the social norms that shape our conversations are can be extremely powerful forces, uh, but they're also things that are kind of typically enforced in 
a dynamic that is less top-down, a person of authority taking an abstract set of rules and applying them to you, and much more something that is created kind of collaboratively and in a dynamic fashion. They can, the social forces can be extremely strong pressures, um, but they're not necessarily the same, you know, a third party is articulated as standard and is holding every single speech act that you engage in accountable to it. Um, so we're really in an environment today of, I think, deeply rethinking as society here in the US, in Europe, around the world, what it is that we're sort of expecting or thinking about when we think about free speech online. Um, and when we're having those conversations here in the US, and we're talking about Section 230, um, there are a lot of ways that people are kind of pointing to 230 as not, not measuring up or not meeting um, the standards that they want to see. One, one common thing that we see um, discussed when, you know, when Congress has hearings about the state of online speech um, is the sense that you know, there's nothing coercive about Section 230. Section 230 has kind of two key operative parts, the, the first 26 words that say um, you know, no, no intermediary content host or other kind of intermediary is liable as a publisher or speaker of third party content. And intermediaries are also shielded for um, the activity that they do to moderate content. Uh, so if I post something on Facebook and Facebook takes it down, I don't have a cause of action, even if we could think of a law that might apply, I can't sue Facebook for its action in moderating my speech. Um, we've, run in, we've seen a number of different cases kind of look at that question as, as different people have tried different ways to sue major tech companies. Um, and anytime that cause of action is about, did they moderate my speech, did they take it down, um, or improperly not take it down, Section 230 is pretty clear. Um, but those are both forms of protection for the platform. And there's not, it's, it's a lot of carrot. Uh, there's not really any stick to it. Um, there are good reasons for that, partly because a lot of the content that people want to see platforms taking more action against um, or moderating, whether we're talking about disinformation or here in the US, if we're talking about things like hate speech or harassment or bullying that doesn't rise to the level of criminal conduct, we're talking about speech that is protected by the First Amendment. Um, we're talking about speech that it would be difficult to compel a platform to take action against even if 230 different didn't exist because you'd be asking you'd be trying to craft a law that required a content host to take down someone's lawful constitutionally protected speech that's probably not going to get very far um, with the Supreme Court uh, for you know as I think for very good reason um, section 230 does work though to enable content moderation by removing that the legal risk, for doing content moderation from platform shoulders. Um, so shielding them from the lawsuits from their users who get caught up in their, their terms of service. Um, but at a time when our information ecosystem feels out of control, um, a lot of people seem to, a lot of the discussion around the shortcomings of 230 seem to focus on this concept that it's, it's not coercive. Um, I think we also see that sometimes in the, uh, a common confusion around Section 230 that we see in congressional hearings um, on the topic is whether there's any kind of content neutrality required of 
platforms or intermediaries in order to benefit from Section 230's protection? There is not. Uh, the, the 26 words that, that Jeff read, that's it. There's no like secret hidden, you have to be neutral in how you do moderation to benefit from this protection. Platforms can be as you know skewed as they want. They can do content-based and viewpoint-based restrictions on their user's speech. That's part of what 230 um, enables. It enables the, the platform to make that choice and to set their own terms and their own policies. Um, so there's, I think we even see it in the kind of the current discussions around the state of the law, people almost not even being able to believe that there's genuinely nothing coercive in the law. Um, another, I think, interesting facet of Section 230 for us to think about here in the US is that it is, it's, it's almost a negative right formulation the way the First Amendment is. So the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and the other First Amendment freedoms. Um, it, it is not a theory that says there's a positive obligation for, for the government to enable the conditions for free speech. It is very much focused on prohibiting government action that could limit or burden speech. Um, in a somewhat similar way, Section 230 is, is a sort of a negative right, like no court shall find an intermediary liable um, if these conditions obtain. That's really effective at promoting free speech in some respects, um, but it doesn't, as I was mentioning earlier, answer questions about the more sort of positive right side of things, the what are the conditions that truly enable freedom of expression? And so I think as a, as a kind of observer of how these conversations are can be different here in the US and in Europe, for example, where there are there's much more of a positive right sense, a, a sense of obligation for the state to enable conditions for freedom of speech, as well as restrictions on things like hate speech and glorification of terrorism. There's this interesting, if sometimes like kind of unrealized or unarticulated transatlantic dialogue going on where I see many more people in the US today talking in a more positive rights framework and recognizing and drawing out um, these dynamics. So the dynamic of the chilling effect of hate speech or harassment. Um, this is actually something now that we're seeing people do, do studies and document. For example, looking at um, reporters, I think it was maybe the Guardian newspaper, um, did a, an analysis of the comments that uh, their different reporters received on articles that they posted and found that the top 10 reporters receiving, you know, the most harassment in those comments, the you know, nasty, vile, insulting, threatening, completely off topic um, kind of comments in response to their articles were across the board either women or people of color or both, um, or LGBT. Uh, so the, it was just this really kind of stark look at like, okay, the, the burdens of harassment and hate speech are not shared equally across all commentators online. Um, and that Ha one of the real dynamics affecting whether people feel like they can use the internet for this, you know, this vaunted vision of accessing information and finding a place for their speech. Yes, some of that depends on things like whether there's a law against your speech, whether an intermediary is going to take you down, but some of it really depends on these other, the other dynamics and the other conditions in the speech platforms um, that you're trying to engage in. So as we kind of think about the future of Section 230 and what else, what else we might be looking for, um, what else legal systems uh, like ours here in the US might do about this, 
I think it's important to recognize that there are some really fundamentally different ways of thinking about free speech um, that are kind of the substrate of some of our conversations that need to probably move up into um, more overt uh, conversation and consideration. Um, only a couple minutes left, so I'll just do high points for uh, the kind of future of all of this. Um, I've mentioned Europe a couple of times already, and there was a, a moment in the book where um, Jeff notes uh, like Twitter and I think Facebook and YouTube all talking about in about 2016 how much more they were doing to take down terrorist propaganda. And it wasn't exactly clear you know, from a US perspective what the motivation there was. Like why did they suddenly, starting around 2015, 2016, really start taking proactive efforts um, uh, you know, and pushing things um, themselves. And to me, the answer seemed very clear, it was Europe. <laughs> it was the uh, legal and um, regulatory and policy debates happening in the European Union, particularly in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo shootings that happened in early 2015, um, that immediately led to a number of very intense conversations, uh, policy conversations in Europe, including things like the counterterrorism coordinator for the European Union in early 2015, just months after the attack, recommending that Europe set up something called uh, Internet Referral Unit, uh, which is a law enforcement agency. There's now one housed at Europol. Um, there's several in different member states across the EU where members of law enforcement will identify material that they think should come down from an online platform and without going to a judge, without getting a ruling that the content is unlawful, send an order to the social media platform saying, we think this content violates your terms of service and we think you should take it down. There's no particular legal compulsion to these orders, but they're coming to companies in the context of a legislature, the, the European Parliament, that is primed and ready to pass laws regulating tech companies um, that are thinking the old balance, the old dynamics of um, intermediary liability are skewed. So I am over time. I'll stop there. Um, thank you for uh, your book, which is, I think, teeing up some of the most important conversations we can be having in this space. Very interesting comments. I myself had sort of gone through time assuming that uh, both Brexit and the Trump election had caused a lot of, certainly put it on the public agenda. And so your remarks about Charlie Hebdo are well taken because that, of course, is uh, it's in January of uh, 2015, so uh, really almost two years prior to that. Uh, and that does, does suggest, though, that a lot of what we talk about in this area, like in so many areas, is about recent events, wherever it began, 2015 or 2016. But our next commentator has been on these issues before they were uh, popular and before they were on the front of uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post or before legislators. David G. Post was, until his retirement in 2016, the I. Herman Stern Professor of Law at Temple University Law School. Currently is a contributor at the Vala Conspiracy, which is hosted by Reason Magazine, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, where he is sometimes called upon to have lunch with John Samples. Uh, he maintains also an active amicus brief practice, trained originally as a physical anthropologist. See, I told you that was going to come up again. 
David was one of the first internet law scholars in the United States. He has been a member of the faculties of Columbia University in the Department of Anthropology and the law schools at Georgetown and George Mason Universities in addition to Temple. A practicing lawyer at the Washington DC firm of Wilmer Cutler and Pinkering and a law clerk for, clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yes, you can feel free to ask him about her retirement plans later over long. <laughs> he is the author of In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on Cyberspace in 2009, A Jeffersonian Perspective on Internet Law and Policy. Jefferson had something to say about everything, actually. Cyber Law, Problems of Policy and Jurisprudence in the Information uh, uh, Age. Uh, his 1996 article in the Stanford Law Review co-authored with David R. Johnson, Law and Borders, the Rise of Law in Cyberspace is considered one of the internet law's foundational documents and was recently identified as the second most cited intellectual property law review article of all time. David, earn those lunches, buddy. Yeah, boy. Thank you. Somebody said, once said, I'm sorry my parents aren't here to hear that wonderful introduction. Uh, my father would have been impressed and my mother would have believed it. Um, so I have three observations about Jeff's uh, excellent book, um, or three categories. Uh, one is um, sort of a general nostalgia for the, the old days and the old battles. Um, I wasn't directly involved in the Communications Decency Act debates or the debates over 230, but I was involved with those who were involved. Uh, at CDT, among other places, the Electronic Frontier Foundation as well. Um, and Jeff's book is a reminder of what a strange and, and bizarre tale really this is. Uh, a bizarre tale of, of legal evolution, of how the law shapes society and shapes business and shapes commerce. Um, uh, they are the 26 words that created the internet, at least the internet as we know it today. Um, I, I agree with Jeff about about that. Um, several years ago, I was writing about 2.30, and I, I said similar sentiment, although I phrased it differently. I said it was the sentence, the one sentence uh, that created more wealth and more value and more jobs and revenue and impact than any other sentence in the US code. Um, and I stand by that, unless somebody uh, wants to give me a, a, a counterexample. Uh, it is impossible to see how the entire user-generated content phenomenon of the past 15 and 20 years could have happened without it, because the numbers are such, the scale of operations on the internet is such, that the liability exposure without 230, or without something like 230, uh, as, a, as an immunity for user-generated content, content sites is incalculably large. Uh, I, it's hard to see how you could have raised a dollar for a Facebook or a Twitter or a Reddit or a Pinterest or a WordPress or a Blogger or any of the user-generated uh, content sites um, without some liability protection of the kind that 230 gives. Um, it's a strange, bizarre story, uh, as several people have mentioned already, because it was completely under, the, it was so far under the radar. Um, uh, this cr the, the most important sentence in the U.S. Code, or the most uh, uh, valuable sentence in the U.S. Code, buried in these thousands of pages of very complex te uh, technical 
uh, 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 provisions of the Telecom Act, which was itself a major reorganization of the entire telecom industry in the United States. So there was lots of fighting and yelling and screaming about all that. And in the midst of all that was this Communications Decency Act, which was all about indecency and pornography and how are we going to stop it? And everybody's fighting about that. And then, you know, off in the corner is the, are the 26 words. Um, Plus, nobody knew what it meant. It was it was it went beneath the radar. In part, the language is a little odd. Uh, shall not be treated as a publisher or speaker of information provided. In intermediaries shall not be treated as a publisher or speaker of uh, content provided by another information provider. Uh, it's not self-executing. Uh, standing there in the code, it's just well, what does that mean? Until again, as Jeff. Uh, elaborates in the book until the courts began interpreting it. Uh, Zeron, uh, the Matt Drudge case, uh, uh, others. Uh, it's not, it was not clear what its impact would be, even if you knew it was there uh, in the midst of this uh, 2,000 pages of, of uh, statutory text. It wasn't clear what the impact would be. It, could, it was given a broad reading by the courts that has become the law of the land, um, but it could have been otherwise, and we did not know. I don't think anybody really knows. It's strange, too, because of this sort of weird paradoxical feature uh, that it has. With all that, is, that has happened in the last 20 years, it's hard to remember that the purpose of Section 230, again, I think Emma talked about this a bit, the purpose of Section 230 was to encourage internet intermediaries to do content moderation. Um, it was a direct response to this Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy case. Um, as, as Jeff was uh, describing. Um, and that, too, by the way, is slightly bizarre. This is a trial court in the New York State system out there on Nassau County, Long Island, that issues this opinion that has this earth-shaking uh, uh, effects. That's unusual. Um, uh, but the Prodigy case said, in effect, if you moderate content, we're going to treat you as a publisher. And if we treat you as a publisher, you are, li you are strictly liable, knowledge or not, of the material that you publish. Um, Section 230 says, on, to the contrary, that we won't hold you liable for third-party content. We won't hold the intermediaries liable for third-party content. And that won't change even if you do moderate content. That's not going to make you a publisher. Um, the idea was that this would encourage uh, the platforms to do some content moderation, to take down offensive, hateful, pornographic, whatever they decided, um, as Emma was saying, whatever they thought was inappropriate, they now could take down without the fear of this crushing um, and incalculable liability. Um, it, so it didn't really give intermediaries a specific incentive to moderate content. It removed a disincentive to moderate with the hope that the companies would then devise their own content moderation procedures, sort of like a double negative. It's one of the sort of paradoxical features of the, uh, of the act. And whether it was successful or not in doing that, uh, we could talk about during the QA. That is whether the companies have, have devised their own content moder moderation procedures and whether those have been sufficient or whether it's too, too soon to tell. So that was one sort of series of thoughts that I had about about this. this. The second general category, one, another thing I liked about Jeff's retelling of the Section 230 story 
is that he makes it a story, at least in significant part, about internet exceptionalism. Uh, this was, and in my view still remains, a hot debate in internet law and policy circles. Is the internet so different from real space that it needs its own rules, it needs new legal structures and new legal institutions, or not? Uh, I've been an exceptionalist since the start, I think. Uh, and 230 was certainly a victory for the exceptionalists. Uh, at its most basic, it says, liability can be imposed on the Washington Post for content that WashingtonPost.com can distribute the exact same content and be immune. And there's no more, there's no clearer, there has been no clearer uh, distinction between sort of, those, there's a, we have a different law for the internet than we have for real space publications. Same content. And exceptionalism triumphed here for what I think are good reasons. Uh, the internet, of course, is different from real space in some ways and the same in other ways. But the internet is different from real space uh, with respect to the intermediary function uh, in ways that are crucial and in ways that are most salient to, uh, uh, to this question. And the difference is the scale, or one difference, major difference, is the scale of the operation, the numbers. The internet as my colleague James Grimmelman has nicely put it, is incomprehensibly and sublimely large. It is the largest undertaking in human history. Its immense size is foundational, is definitional attribute of the internet is its immense size. It's not big because it's the internet. It's the internet because it's so big because it's the one network that has the capability of connecting everybody together. You all know the numbers, I assume. 100 million uploads to, 100 million uploads to in Instagram a day. A lot of uploads. More content is posted to YouTube in two weeks than was produced by the entire broadcast industry in the United States since its inception. I did a little calculation. Instagram would need to hire 30,000 people. Instagram probably has uh, 200 employees, 400 employees, maybe. We'd have to hire 30,000 people, eight hours a day, seven days a week, no lunch, no breaks, to look to give a one second view of everything that is uploaded to Instagram. They'd have to have 30,000 people looking at each one, one per second. The internet is different, and 230 recognized that. And of course, in recognizing it, it enabled it also. It allowed these, thing, these gigantic things to grow precisely because it gave them protection uh, 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 from liability. And exceptionalism was part of a larger trend. Um, it's interesting to look back. Uh, US law embodied a kind of industrial policy back in the 90s and early 2000s, designed to facilitate the growth of the internet industries. Uh, that had really three pillars. One of them was Section 230. One, I think, was the Tele Telecom Act itself, which uh, removed the internet. It's very complicated, but it put the internet in a sort of more difficult to regulate category than, say, the telephone companies or the cable companies. Um, and the third pillar was the so-called sales tax exemption. Uh, the Supreme Court's rule that you couldn't collect sales tax 
from out-of-state sellers unless they maintain the physical presence in your jurisdiction, which gave companies like Amazon and other uh, internet retailers a big uh, uh, boost. Uh, though they, these were all uncoordinated, it wasn't part of a, no, nobody set this policy in motion. I think it gave emerging internet-based companies, uh, internet ISPs, online retailers, social media platforms, search engines, all the rest got a huge boost uh, out of this special treatment. Whether it should continue, of course, is uh, the question we face today, in a sense. Um, so what happens now? Um, 230 has, of course, come under heavy fire of late. And it is hard to see, actually, it surviving in its present form. Uh, the left doesn't like it. The left doesn't like it because it leaves legal wrongs unremedied. And it appears to privilege large corporations at the expense of individuals who have suffered legal harm. The right doesn't like it. That's a bad combination if you're 230. The right doesn't like it because it turns out some folks on the right don't actually like leaving content modification to private actors. Um, hence the recent brouhaha over the purported bias in Google's uh, search results and in Twitter takedowns and all, and all the rest. Um, and in a sense, if you think, if, if there's something about the internet that you don't like, and Lord knows, there's plenty about the internet not to like. Um, it's easy and not completely unreasonable to lay the blame at the feet of Section 230, precisely because it created the internet as we know it. So it's 230's fault. Whatever it is, it's 230's fault, um, and we should fix Section 230, all of it. But of course, what to do about it is a, is a hard question. Another thing I liked about Jeff's book is the way he finds his way towards a kind of moderate and qualified defense of 230, not ignoring the many wrongs that it has left unremedied, um, uh, some of which are quite horrible, terrible, and the book is, is chilling in some ways, um, but also concluding that on balance, it has probably done more good than harm and is overall a net plus. Um, the arguments that it could use some tweaking are not unreasonable also, perhaps now that these industries have matured, we don't need to be so protective of them, uh, the argument goes. And uh, uh, as I say, it's not an unreasonable argument. It's not a crazy argument. Um, and as many of you probably know, the wall, the 230 wall, has already been breached. Um, and the floodgates may well be opening uh, uh, soon. Last year in FOSTA, the Fight, Onla uh, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, uh, amended 230 to remove the immunity from liability for intermediaries who knowingly assist, facilitate, or support online sex trafficking. Now, I would like to know more about, and I, I mean this genuinely, I'd like to know more about how FOSTA has worked or not worked before I start tweaking Section 230 anymore. Um, FOSTA has, we know, suppressed a great deal of speech. Um, uh, for instance, Craigslist uh, immediately responded by shutting down its personals message boards uh, in light of the liability risk, uh, eliminating millions of postings, um, the vast majority of which, of course, had nothing to do with sex trafficking and were perfectly lawful. Um, has FOSTA had an impact on sex tra trafficking? Has it actually damped it down? I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to know that 
before I evaluate other changes to 230 to see uh, the effects that they may have. It's a perfect sort of natural experiment before we carve up section 230 any further. And notice that the FOSTA sort of illustrates in a way that, that the 230 paradox uh, still looms and is not easily going to go away. Uh, you can't impose strict liability on internet intermediaries for unlawful uh, uh, conduct of their uh, users uh, because of the scale of the operations and the overwhelming liability that, uh, uh, that, that such a move would entail. But a knowingly support or knowingly facilitate standard has its own risks that intermediaries will now be less willing to monitor. This is how we started back at Stratton Oak Oakmont. If they're going to be liable, if they knowingly assist sex trafficking, um, they'll be less willing to take action against uh, sp specific postings or to remove particular messages for fear of opening themselves up to liability for having known of unlawful activities. This is why we had 230 in the first place. Um, and it just has its prodigy all over again. Uh, this is not an easy problem to solve. Uh, I'm going to sort of, uh, and, and it, I, I think the people on both sides of this argument need to recognize that it is not an easy to solve. Uh, uh, problem to solve. Um, one thing that I think, you know, I come from the, spent a lot of time on the copyright wars of the last 20 years. Um, and in copyright law, which is outside, exp expressly exempted from 230's reach, it has an exception for intellectual property. It does not cover intellectual property. In copyright, worked in, on the United States law, worked out its own regime for dealing with this intermediary liability problem, which was very serious. Um, uh, and in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, came up with the uh, this idea of notice and takedown. Um, uh, that, that immunizes intermediaries, but only if they respond and respond expeditiously when they receive notice from someone that there is a, uh, a copyright infringing material on their site. Uh, they take it down. They also have the obligation to then put it back up if the original poster writes back and says, hey, it's not infringing. It's my cousin's playing the guitar and I don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, I think that, I mean, I'd like to see, I, I think we need to uh, sort of uh, think hard and look hard at that kind of regime to see how well it has worked. My impression has been is that it has worked reasonably well, actually, in com both combating infringement, um, but also allowing people uh, freedom to post what they want to post, um, and could be a very good model for sort of uh, uh, 2.30 going forward. Um, so I look forward to hearing what you all have to say uh, or ask in the question and answer period. Thanks. Very good, David. I want to start the question and answer real quick as we organize things here for a question with Jeff. Uh, Jeff, in this bias discussion we've had, we've had two senators assure us that at the origins of 230, the companies and everybody understood that there was going to be a commitment, an obligation for the companies to be neutral, to be politically neutral, and therefore that's what's wrong with this political bias. They're violating their original commitment, and indeed in violating the law, so 230 has to be enforced or it may be changed. Is it correct what the senators say that the companies took on a neutrality obligation? 
Uh, so again, continuing the theme of me not speaking on behalf of the DOD or the federal government, uh, the answer is no. Uh, that there's nothing in their record that talked about this requirement for political neutrality as a condition for Section 230. It was very much focused on moderating all sorts of content. So, but I'm not, from all the legislative history and research that I've done, I've not talked with anyone who said that pol politics and political viewpoint were even an issue. <laughs> I mean, it was all about children's, uh, keeping children safe and allowing moderation practices and allowing free speech. So um, that might have been, the, I, I, perhaps that might have motivated some to say, you know, this will help with political neutrality, but I've not seen anything in the record to say that. Of course, that's compatible with uh, an idea that the companies might have powerful incentives to avoid bias or uh, any other kind of thing. There's a private side to this. So let's go to your questions. Uh, please wait for the microphone. I'm going to be rude and point at you. When it comes, uh, you can identify yourself entirely in line with the internet. You can maintain your anonymity if you want. Uh, but please, anonymous or not, please make sure that it's in the form of a relevant question for our people up here, all right? Right on the aisle here. Thank you. Uh, Carl Zabo with NetChoice. Great panel. Jeff, great book. Uh, you know, the, there was a comment earlier that this is exceptionalism for the Internet, but, Jeff, your book seems to start the American exceptionalism chapter with the First Continental Congress, where they're talking about free speech, empowerment of free speech. So this is kind of an outgrowth of free speech. And then it talks about how Europe has gone the other way on free speech with Article 10. How do we turn away from this notion of protecting the internet or uh, safeguards for the internet to talking more about free speech and then getting that to go more abroad? I know, Emma, you spoke a little bit about this, but I was hoping you could kind of expand about bringing American exceptionalism on free speech, First Amendment, and those types of ideas internationally. I, I'll, I'll defer mostly to Emma, who's really the expert on this, but I'll say we're having a much broader discussion in, in American society, at least from what I see, beyond just the Section 230 issue about these values. Uh, when you look at security, privacy, and free speech, when they come in conflict, uh, you see this with the GDPR and attempts to bring GDPR here. Um, there often are conflicts between free speech and privacy and other values, and the U.S. has always tilted more on the scale of free expression. Uh, Europe has not. But that, that's also a much broader social discussion that I think we're having right now. But I'll defer to Emma. To yeah, no, I, there's so many different ways to potentially answer that question. But I think just in asking what are the prospects of sort of exporting the U.S. First Amendment free speech conception abroad, that is an extremely uphill battle. Um, and I, I don't think there's much success if it's framed like that. Most countries in the world do not look to the model of the First Amendment when they're thinking about how they want to do freedom of expression. It is very much seen as an outlier. It's an outlier near and dear to my heart, um, but it is not, it, we've sort of lost that fight. Um, but what we do have and what there is actually a lot, I think there's actually more in common about our societal conceptions of freedom of speech um, than maybe our how we deal with it in our national constitutions might point to. Um, the conversations we're having today here in the US about freedom of expression 
you know, are, are based in our constitutional framework, but there's also a lot more that we have questions about bias and fairness and am I getting a fair deal on a platform? Do I really understand what the rules are that are being applied to me? And concepts of kind of procedural and substantive fairness and due process are something that show up in our legal system and many other legal systems. Um, the concept that your whatever your restriction on speech is, it needs to be clearly defined, not vague, not overbroad. These are all concepts that appear in US First Amendment doctrine, in international human rights law. I think there's a lot of ground that we can point to in common to try to rein in some of the really aggressive censorship efforts that and intermediary liability efforts that we see going on in other countries. But I think it actually requires those of us in the US First Amendment tradition to do more translation of our dearly held beliefs and, co and core concepts into the language of international human rights law to find what common ground there is. David, anything? Uh, I all that makes me want to defend the First Amendment more strongly. I mean, I've heard that the, the American exceptionalism, it's true. Uh, we have a different view about free expression than the rest of the world. We should hear what they have to say and listen carefully to their different views, of course, respectfully. Um, but it makes me want to, you know, tear my shirt off and say, you know, I'm, I'm, for, the, I'm for the First Amendment. Um, and if we're the only ones out there for it, uh, untrammeled free expression, uh, so be it. You know, one of the interesting things about uh, uh, this debate about 230, every single major internet intermediary platform grew up in the United States. There were a few exceptions, and there are more exceptions now, but for the first 10 or 15 years uh, um, of the internet's Existence. It was all United States. Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and Pinterest and all the. So all you have. Uh, Two thirty helped that happen. The free expression helped that happen. People people migrated to these from all over the world uh, because of the free expression that is permitted on these platforms. And I don't think, in a globalized world, and I respect the views of other people, uh, uh, but in a globalized world, I think that makes it more important for us to stand up and blow the trumpet, as it were. Uh, uh, and lead the charge for the for the First Amendment because without us, it's it's going down the drain. Uh, Can I, gentlemen down front here? We'll thank you, Steve Del Bianco. A question uh, for Emma, but I'd love to hear the whole panel discuss it. Emma spoke over the second half, not the first twenty-six words, but the Good Samaritan part. And uh, I'd like to ask your interpretation of the last phrase there. The second part says that any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be, and here's a list, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. What is your interpretation of otherwise objectionable, both <laughs> in terms of the intent and the interpretation we see today? And what do you think it should be? Thank you. I'm actually curious, um, Jeff, if you, in the, the legislative history, how much there was in that? Because I think short answer in the case law is that that hasn't been deeply examined or, or built out. Yeah, so interestingly, in a lot of the debate about Section 230, and there wasn't very much. There was, uh, I think, about 12 representatives briefly talked on the House floor. Uh, but there wasn't really that much precision at the time about distinguishing the two, C1, which is the 26 words, and C2, which is the good faith. Um, and actually, in the earlier version of the bill that initially was proposed, they were both in the same section. Uh, so 
my, at least what, what you could gather from the debate is that most people were focusing on C2. Nobody really noticed the 26 words in C1, uh, which is just, uh, it still just boggles my mind after spending three years writing this book uh, that nobody noticed it. But um, I, I think the, the otherwise objectionable, I, I think that might be a catch-all to give the providers as much leeway as possible um, to make these good faith moderation efforts. I, I think it. I think it's stronger than that. Actually, I think it goes to Jeff's, uh, 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 to, to John's original question about political neutrality. I think it is a sign that the kind of world they had envisioned was one in which you invite the libertarians to your website and kick everybody else out, and you invite the Republicans, and you invite the Democrats, and you invite the anarchists, and you throw out the Armenians, and you throw out the. Uh, people who have lived abroad, and you, if you find whatever objectionable is objectionable to you, you are permitted to curate your content, and that it is from the diversity of sites, all with their own rules about speech, that we will have a sort of uh, robust conversation. Um, that was my, uh, has been my interpretation of 230 all along, and I think that language actually supports that. It's if it's objectionable to you, you can make, take good faith efforts to control it, and we will not make you a publisher and make you lose the immunity because of that. There's another aspect here that we're sort of, uh, I think, not talking a lot about, but it's definitely in the background, which is, remember, these are businesses. These are not nonprofits. They're not parts of the government, although they sometimes people act as if they are. The, otherwise, the content of, uh, of otherwise objectionable is at least going to be filled by whatever the, is consistent with reaching the business goals. Now, there may be something more than that, but it's going to be at least that. But I suggest, you know, that's not such a terrible thing because wanting to attract people to your uh, platform is, but it may not be consistent with, and certainly the evidence we have is not consistent with as much free speech as uh, the United States Supreme Court enforces on public forums. Uh, the gentleman here, and I'm gonna, I am going to get to the right side over here. It's just the gentleman right down here first. We've, we've still got some time. James Sang, retired. For David Post, you pointed out that the Internet is unique in a variety of ways, including a scale. Um, to what extent uh, would this U.S.-based question become more academic if the Internet fragmented? i.e. if China and India, for example, got .cn and .in and separated itself. Yeah, well, ma well many people would, would say that the Internet has fragmented in, in a sense. Um, and that, you know, for many years, that there was a single Internet in the sense that it would look the same whether you were in San Francisco or Shanghai or the, Hungary or wherever you were, that if you logged onto the Internet, uh, that is no longer true for a variety of reasons. Um, some commercial, um, but mostly sort of governmental and uh, walls around content and uh, uh, whitelists white and blacklists of sites and all that. So in a sense that has, uh, you know, what can I say? Um, you, we fight against that. Um, and I think the most valuable thing, uh, to, to me that is a terrible tragedy that we have actually lost that or are, well, some of that um, universality of, of the internet. It was the one place on earth where everybody had equal access to the same 
the forms of content, and it's a remark was is and was a remarkable resource, and we are watching that sort of decline, I think, because of both commercial pressures and government pressures. The gentleman in the very back, my colleague John Mueller, has been waiting. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, I want to ask about the magnitude of the harms. Uh, uh, what harms there are and what the magnitude of it might be. We've already seemed to indicate that whatever harm there is is microscopic compared to the good overall. But even in the cases you bring up, the, the Mosier case, the fact that she was hurt by someone with a malicious rumor and lost business, it meant that the businesses must have been out to lunch or something because they're punishing her for something which is an outright lie. The guy with the telephone problems can change his number and so forth. Um, I've done a fair amount of study with terrorism, and it's almost overwhelmingly clear that the internet is really great for the police, <coughs> because most terrorists are too stupid to realize that posting their proclivities on Facebook and on Twitter is a good way to attract the attention of the FBI. So on balance, the harms that uh, facilitating terrorism are overwhelmed by the fact that they're more likely to be uh, disrupted. So, so I, I, I would say that, um, for individuals who have suffered certain circumstances, it's the harm is overwhelming. So the Zarin case, I would say, uh, he had to go on psychiatric medication. He couldn't sleep for weeks. Uh, so that that was that that was tragic. More and more, there there are worse cases that have come up. I would say the most recent case was decided about two weeks ago by the Second Circuit, finding Section 230 immunity for a man whose ex wanted to get revenge on him. So he posted on a dating app, all basically inviting anonymous strangers to come to both his work and home and demand sex with him. And th he, that resulted in, I believe it was hundreds, if not more than a thousand people basically threatening him because they thought that's what he was looking for. His photo was on there. He repeatedly called uh, the site and was begging for help and they did not help him. That's, and so Section 230 immunized him, the site from that. I would say that's a pretty overwhelming harm. Uh, there was another, there was a woman who um, was, uh, who was advertising on, on a modeling website. There were these two men who uh, basically posed as recruiters, but, uh, but basically gave her a date rape drug and raped her. Uh, apparently the site had known about it. And uh, that was actually a case where Section 230 immunity was not provided, but for failure to warrant. So anyway, I, I think that, yes, overall, there are great benefits of Section 230, but you have to look at some of these people whose lives are turned upside down. And I think any fair analysis of Section 230 does have to look at that. Um, just one other thought on kind of how we think about harms online. I think it's helpful to look at what are the unique characteristics of the internet and how those play into the harms. So essentially a lot of the, the harms that I think that we, we see and that motivate um, some of these extremely compelling cases are from the potential for kind of amplification um, and enormous reach of communications in a way that 
you know, Section 230 shields the website operator from liability for that. And there's nothing else necessarily in our legal system that could capture that. Or in the case of harassment from a, uh, on a social media platform where the harassment is not from one other person insistently harassing somebody over a period of time, the way our, our legal system tends to think about harassment, but, in, but is instead the form of like, a single post from 10,000 strangers all directed at a person all at once. And this is something that Danielle Citron and other scholars have done a great job kind of describing that that, that is a different kind of harm. It's not how we, in the law, you know, previous to the internet, thought about the concept of harassment. We thought that there'd be a person to charge with doing the harassment. Um, so I, I think that is important to think about, are there novel harms that really are facilitated or, or only on the internet or because of the characteristics of the internet. And that, but that still doesn't answer the question of, so who should mitigate those harms and what should the responses, um, the resources be? Uh, I, My question is not, are there cases to respond, but is it a not beyond, not beyond Well, I wanted to, uh, I, yeah. Yeah, you've got, got. Well, no, I, I no. If, if you want to respond to that, I, I wanted to respond. Yeah, to another I, I mean, I, I would say that it's not just anecdotes. Uh, online harassment and really tragic defamation. Not not just something where someone gives their gives a negative opinion of, of a business, but actually really ruining people's lives. That does happen, uh, and it does happen. I, I mean, I, I I don't know how how many, I know that there are lawyers whose days are busy just with representing these people. I, I, and I, I would not write those off as trivial. I think those are very real and we do need to look at how the platforms can better protect people against that because if they don't, I, I think Section 230's days are numbered. If all of these harms, I think there are some, some criticisms are just not valid. Others like the people who get harass constantly, that's something that really happens. And we, we need to take a hard look at how do we solve that. Otherwise, we're not going to have Section 230 anymore. I wanted to, to focus on sort of the other side of, flip side of, of, of your comment, this, this, this idea that, you know, think about the Craigslist personals uh, and the sex trafficking. Um, uh, there was probably, almost well, certainly was sex, sex trafficking going on via the Craigslist personals. We now don't have the Craigslist personals. Now, either those, some of that may disappear, but some of it may go underground. And in, so instead of having a public place that the police can monitor, and we're monitoring, um, and a place where you could go with a subpoena, and they will give you information on the IP addresses of the, the, the perpetrators, if you find something, uh, they vanished into the dark web or someplace that is untraceable. Uh, that's, a, that's a cost of removing the uh, immunity in a sense, um, to the extent that the activities still go on but are now much more difficult to find because we have made it so, the law has made it uh, so costly to, to allow it in a public place. That may just mean that the police have a harder time actually tracking things down. I'd like to hear from the police about that actually. So uh, time is short and scarce, and I'm the FCC of uh, this particular event. So our last question will come from the gentleman in front of uh, John Mueller. I never that analogy never occurred to me. I'm generally against the FCC. Uh, thanks for a great panel. Uh, 
Uh, Emily, you mentioned uh, uh, Professor Citron just a minute ago. Uh, she wrote a piece with Benjamin Wittes from, from Lawfare, I think in 2017, where they argued that uh, Section 230 should be limited to service providers who put in place reasonable measures to prevent their services from being used for sort of unlawful activity. Uh, I'm just curious if anyone on the panel has a reaction to that to that proposal, uh, what the downsides might be, or or if that seems like a, a reasonable approach. Uh, I, I addressed the article in the book, uh, and I I think that they make some compelling arguments, some compelling criticisms in the article, particularly uh, about the chilling effect that Section 230 can have on certain people's speech. It's very much like the Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon argument about the First Amendment. Uh, that said, I don't know how you would apply that rule. Uh, I don't, would, I, I think they use the dirty as an example of something that would encourage harmful content. Um, what about Yelp? I mean, Yelp could, Yelp encourages users to leave reviews. Could that be seen as encouraging defamatory reviews? So I just, I, I, my concern is in the implementation because we know there are certain sites that you want that, that I don't think play a useful social role, but I don't know if that change to it would then start censoring legitimate sites that play a very valid social purpose. Yeah, I don't, right now I don't think anybody has much of a description about what reasonable content moderation would be, particularly if you keep in mind the actual diversity of different kinds of sites out there. Um, you know, what is reasonable for a Facebook versus a Wikipedia versus WordPress or Medium? And, and that's not to say one couldn't define such standards, but there, it, I don't think there's something off the shelf that we could just plug into the legal system now. Um, two quick comments, one is, Anytime we talk about amending Section 230, we also have to practically think about whatever fine, nuanced, well-balanced tweak you might theorize and, and go into the process with, what will come out of Congress is probably going to look pretty different. Um, we saw that actually in the, the creation of Section 230, uh, where it was sort it was proposed as an amendment to Senator Exxon's idea, and they just sort of got combined and both passed into law. We saw that with FOSTA-SESTA, where what the House came up with as the alternative to SESTA, that eventually we had this hybrid, as Jeff talks about in the book, and Professor Eric Goldman is described as the worst of both worlds. Let's take both bills and pass them both into law. Um, it's, it's not to say that it's impossible to come up with def amendments to Section 230, but I genuinely, and why CDT is pretty much always on the position of asking Congress not to do what they're trying to do to Section 230, um, is because the, the actual outcome is so far from any kind of ideal scenario. Um, but it's a really, what um, Danielle and Ben kind of point to is very much a trend that we are seeing in other countries um, who are much more capable of just passing laws quickly. Um, and and this this look at evaluate and there, there's something to be said for it as a, a shift from liability based on a single mistake that a company makes about whether to take something down or leave it off into more of a looking at um, the systems and processes that they have in place. Again, against which standards are they being judged? It's not clear how much discretion does that give a regulator to go after a particular company that they're particularly upset with. There's a lot of drawbacks to the model, but it's going. It's moving from theoretical to very much in practice in countries where, to push back a little bit on, on David's earlier shirt-ripping First Amendment moment, these companies may have 
grown up in the US and been benefited from the First Amendment and Section 230, but they are not leaving the European market anytime soon. And, and so much of what they have done, from my perspective, in how they do content moderation, the co-regulatory and self-voluntary, self-regulatory initiatives that they've taken up in response to regulatory pressure in Europe are affecting us in the US today and whether we like it or not, whether we have any, any say in it or not. And so we have to really be aware of those. We can insist on the US First Amendment and Section 230 model as much as we can, but because it's not coercive, that's not actually gonna get promotion of, of those values very far. Uh, let me just say, it, it, it's another place where I think actually the, I mean, what, what, what's frightening about the sort of reason, you know, take reasonable measures is, of course, the uncertainty that that engenders. And in a diverse environment like the internet, what is reasonable in one day and one site is, is it can be very difficult. And that's very costly when aggregated over the whole system. Um, the notice and takedown system in copyright law has a bunch of specific things that websites have to do to remain immune. It's very straightforward. You have to have a mailbox where people can send in notices of a particular form and the form is specified. They have to give you this information and if you put, in order to avail yourself of the, the immunity. And I think something like that, as I said before, I think is worth exploring. I think it's hard to say that that's overburdensome. And it's very clear, relatively clear. Um, the other thing going on here that we haven't mentioned that I just want to leave, leave with is that to the extent, I mean, it can't, you can't monitor. I mean, there's too much activity to actually monitor. It, it's not reasonable to expect a Facebook or a Twitter to actually be looking at the content to decide whether it is hateful or objectionable or pornographic or anything because there's too much of it. What they will do to the extent they are obligated to do something is rely on algorithms to do so. That is what they are doing now. Um, that's a whole other conversation, but it's related to this conversation. If you want to live in a world where you wake up and your the Facebook the, the page has been taken down because... Well, we don't know why because. Because it was, it violated some, had something on it that triggered one of these uh, uh, automated algorithms. Um, uh, that's the, the direction in which, it, in, in which we will be moving to the extent that we obligate people to, uh, to, to take steps. And I'm not sure that is the direction that we always want to go. Uh, just to add to that point, I mean, if the AI stuff works, that's, when you think about what is a publisher, it's a, it's a company or a person that has an ex-ante regulation of content. That's why you can hold them responsible for libel. To the extent that uh, AI works, the companies are going to be able to filter it out, and they will look more like a publisher, and if they look more like a publisher, it's harder to argue that Section 230 should exist. But that seems down the road, if ever, I think we have to say. Our book today has been The 26 Words That Created the Internet by Jeff Kossoff. Congratulations, Jeff, on it. And please join me in thanking our panelists.